The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Tired of diesel buses? Want more cycle lanes or bus lanes? Which projects do you want Auckland Transport to work on first? They need your opinion. So head to haveyoursay.at.govt.nz forward slash RLTP to do just that. Consultation closes on 17 June. Get in quick. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I have missed the sound so much. That is Pink Cola by Samuel Flynn Scott. And of course, when you hear that, you know that it is time for a surprise bonus episode of the Offspin, the Spinoffs Cricket World Cup podcast. So last time we spoke, it was the morning of the Cricket World Cup final. Simon Day was in a state of shock. How are you now, Simon? Oh, not not fully recovered. People still ask me uh, if I'm okay, and mm. sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. I still have moments where I, I do this sort of cry laugh thing. I'll be in the shower or driving, and I'll I'll think about one of those moments because that game was full of so many uh, moments, and it'll it'll just get me again. There'll be little shivers and there'll be the, the what could have been. And, and then I'll remember what an amazing game of sport it was. And it kind of helps sometimes. And sometimes I think of what could have been. And sometimes I don't think about it at all. But uh, I, I took the risk of watching highlights of the game uh, recently. <laughs> I wanted to watch the whole, um, the whole second innings. Um, but that's not easily available at, at this point. But I watched the highlights and I still found myself, you know, shouting at Guppy, like, go Guppy, come on! And I knew it, what it was going to happen, but uh, it was such an emotional game. Such, such a crazy last five overs from the point where um, Tim Southey caught Joss Butler. It was one of the craziest sort of 45 minutes in sport that I've ever seen. And so if I can just interrupt your, your five minute monologue there, it sounds like you're doing great. <laughs> it sounds like you're doing fantastically. Um, and we've actually got a guest today who had a little bit of a connection to the final. Uh, he's a former communications staffer with a company that sells farming apps. He's the flatmate of Silver Fern star Bailey Mears. World Cup winner. He's Twitter famous and he plays a bit of cricket as well. Jimmy Nisham, how are you? Hey guys, yeah, good. How are you? Oh, pretty I, good. Like, sounds good. sounds like you're coping all right. I was hoping like the first thing we could maybe do is is hug. Would that be all right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jimmy. It means a lot. Thank you. He is still processing it, and by that I mean Simon. But you know, I, I should ask you as well, uh, given that you're actually there. How how are you processing it? Um, I'm good now. I, I think. Uh, it was sort of a an up and down month, I suppose. Five mm. weeks after the after the final, and um, it was extremely tough. As you mentioned, Bailey Mez is my flatmate. I stayed over in England mm. to watch the Netball mm. World Cup afterwards, and um, that week was 
was unbearable basically still being in England and having to see billboards and um, TV ads of fireworks going off and people lifting trophies and that sort of thing was yeah. pretty tough but yeah um, and then you had to put up with it with your own flatmate as well yeah I've got how has your home life been since then you know is that uh, is that kind of tense around the dinner table at the moment no no it's not at all it's um if anything it's probably the opposite I think we've started we've almost taken the piss out of it a little bit with um, sort of family members come round to see the medal and that sort of thing mm. and whenever they get photos I sort of get in the background and look really <laughs> sad and all that kind of stuff so I'll show you one after the um, after the podcast but um, yeah it's been great obviously I mean the only alternative is that neither of us won the World Cup which mm. is obviously a lot mm. worse than one of us so um, I'm obviously really happy for her and um, it was great to get to celebrate a win um, yeah, albeit a, a little bit late mm, mm. and it was a hell of a tournament as well I think uh, you know the the difference between the World Cups is that uh, you know with the Silver Ferns one being so short and at the start of the weekend they were about to play a semi-final and by Monday morning they had won the tournament whereas the Cricket World Cup was, was such an odyssey in some ways I mean Six weeks of really intensive, stressful one-day cricket. How did it feel when you had come to the end of it? Did it, it did it feel at all like a, a weight had been lifted just to reach the finish line? Uh, no, not really. It, it wasn't really a a mentally taxing tournament. That probably sounds unusual, but I think the way we, we set up our group with all the families and partners and, and children and stuff there, it, um, it didn't really feel like there was all that much pressure, even though from the mm. outside there was obviously a lot. Um, it felt a lot more like a family tournament. I think the guys look back at 2015 and you know they say it was the time of their lives and um, it was a stag do with cricket mixed in and that sort of thing. <laughs> Quite a lot of golf as yeah, well. Yeah, a lot of golf and... Um, I think it was a very different vibe this time around. It was much more family. I think there were something like 20 or 25 people mm, with us. Mm. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot of going out and, and sort of drinking after games. It was more sort of go back and hang with the kids and that sort of thing, which um, certainly gave it more of a family atmosphere. And um, after the tournament, after the final, uh, no, it wasn't relief. It was, I suppose, just emptiness, I guess, for a couple mm. of days. You, you don't fly out. Well, the guys don't fly out until two days after the final um, because of the media obligations and stuff you have to go through the next day so that whole next day was kind of just guys floating around in the hotel not really knowing what to do to themselves I guess and mm. um, it was sort of a, a weird moment the day after when people started sort of filing off and going off to Italy and you know people were going home and that sort of thing it was kind of strange and then you're left sitting in your room looking around and it's over it's quite a strange feeling after being involved for so long yeah yeah have you watched the game since? Um, I've watched, there was a like a montage that played, I think during the first Ashes test, maybe when it was raining, they played one. That and real high spec, almost artistic one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen that um, and it's awful. It's the worst thing I've ever watched. Um, <laughs> it, it just really, every time, well, every time I think about it, I sort of remember another thing that was astronomically unlucky that happened mm. <laughs> and it's sort of there's about seven or eight in a row it's just kind of almost a little bit surreal but um nothing yeah. went our way nothing like all of those 50 50 moments even like 60 40 to our advantage just fell against us mm. it was oh. 
when I mean, what's what's your relationship with luck in a way? Because I think uh, I don't I don't mean to be super negative here, but I think conversely, you could also look at the run into the final. And so there are a lot of moments of luck. I mean, Carlos Braithwaite hitting you a metre further in the West Indies game. Uh, Kane Williamson, uh, say he had have edged through to the keeper when he played that beautiful late cut against South Africa. Uh, with all of those moments throughout the tournament going the way of the Black Caps, I mean, do, is it just sort of swings and roundabouts how it ended up happening in the final? Or do you feel like there was a, a you know some sort of fate or or anything like that i mean how how do you cope with luck being the determinant of such big moments in your career uh well you have to just cope with it i think it's part of the sport we play it's not darts or lawn bowls or you know temp and bowling where it's a, a closed environment where you do what you're meant to do well and you'll win it, it's one of these things that there's so many different variables that if you play a cover drive terribly, you play a miss. If you play it better, you nick off. And if you play it better than that, you hit it for four. So mm-hmm. it's all just trying to sort of ride the waves, I guess, of, of that luck. And um, you look at someone like Ben Stokes in that last five overs, was he very <laughs> lucky? Yeah, he was incredibly lucky. But mm. it wasn't lucky that he was there on 85 not out off 100, giving himself the opportunity to have that luck. And I think um, that's all you can really do is as work as hard as you can to, to give yourself the chance to be lucky mm. and then you just have to shrug your shoulders and go it wasn't our day that day and I think that was one thing we did extremely well throughout the tournament if you look at the semi-final against um, India sorry the, the round robin game against Pakistan who mm-hmm. which both games that went different ways we actually fought really hard to give ourselves the opportunity to win both of those games we won one we lost one but if you do what say Pakistan did against West Indies in the start of the round robin and find yourself in trouble and just capitulate and lose well then you don't give yourself a chance to set yeah. a defendable total and, and give yourself a chance to be lucky and, and have and, India and then nine games later you're slightly behind on net run rate exactly and all those things I mean of course there's luck involved there's luck involved in winning the toss and mm. doing to do what you want to do it's just one of those games but um, it also makes it a beautiful game I guess because you can never guarantee nothing you do can guarantee success if, if there was anything you could do to guarantee success people would just do it and win every game it's, mm. it just mm. doesn't exist so you just have to ride those um, I suppose waves of the game well the other part of it is I mean we hear cricketers are quite superstitious and on the day of the final did anyone fuck up by putting the wrong shoe on first <laughs> or something or, or I don't know just any tiny sort of superstitious thing that went wrong that we could potentially blame forever um no, I mean, I, I'm aggressively non-superstitious, mm. so I, I sort of go out of my way to... Oh, so you, I don't know, have, do you stand up when someone's on 99 or something like that, or, you know, go out of your way uh, to break the superstition? Pr- probably the only thing I do do is if we're going well, I won't move in the change room. That's probably the only thing, and I, that's, I think that's more a vibe thing, because everyone sort of believes that so much that if you do move and you lose a wicket everyone gets angry at you even if you don't believe it yourself so when it comes to watching other people I suppose I'm a little bit superstitious but as far as you know putting your left pad on first or taping your shoelaces to your socks or any of that sort of stuff uh, Mm. that's not really my business it's funny because it's such a you know intelligent uh, logical sport it's very funny I think how much superstition can can be a part of its culture 
I, I too was have never been superstitious about it until the 2015 World Cup when I forgot to bake a bacon and egg pie. Uh, for the final <laughs> and I'd baked one for, and taken it to the game for every single one so I baked one uh, for the final this this year and I thought you know I'd almost pulled it reversed the curse of the pie but uh, not to be not this yeah. time it was a good pie though it was a really good pie. Um, Recipe is on the spinoff.co.nz. Sorry, so what do you do? Do you make it and then just leave it in the oven uncooked? Or no, I cook it and bring it to the... Usually I take it to the ground Yeah. Um, and eat it at the park because, okay. you know, the stadium food's so shit. Mm-hmm. Um, although Lord's food sounds amazing. You can BYO beers and wine and stuff. Yeah, Lord's... Yeah, I've been on both sides of the fence at Lord's and the food's, yeah, very good. But no, I, well, I was very pissed though when I was eating it when I was watching, so I probably can't. Because they serve curries as well, which is perfect for um, having a big day at the ground. Honestly, I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> I was there with Doug Bracewell. <laughs> okay, that, I mean, I don't want to cast dispersions, but that maybe says a lot. <laughs> speaking, speaking of drinking, um, the Offspin is brought to you by Coffee Supreme, and you know, on such an occasion, we felt like it was important to take the coffee to the next level, so... We all have a cup, and we're just going to add a little bit of um, Lefroig from the uh, the Isle of Islay. Isla, excuse my pronunciation, um, because, you know. The Isle of Isla. I guess it's just called Isla. It's like the Isle of Sky. Spelled Islay, but it's pronounced Isla. Jimmy has to go over bat, so we'll just put a little dash. <laughs> That's um, got a good excuse if I knock off a couple of times. Where, where are you training at the moment, by the way? Uh, I just train, I have a coach in Auckland um, that I've used since I was 17, or well, 16 or 17, who I um, sort of check in with whenever mm. I'm up, and um, we just work on the bowling machine, and um, I basically just bowl at cones by myself, so there's not a whole lot of, um, I suppose, support structure in Auckland for someone who plays for Wellington, Yes. Um, <laughs> so I just sort of make do with, with what's available. Speaking of coaches, though, that was the sort of the final crazy twist to that game was... Um the death of your high school coach during the Super Over. That must have felt like a surreal exclamation point to that crazy game. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I didn't actually find out until a couple of days later, two or three days later. Um, and uh, I text my old man, my, him and my old man were really good friends, and um, I sort of asked him if he'd heard, because he was on holiday, mm. Um and he said, yeah, he replied and said, oh, I was going to text you after the World Cup final and say, oh, well, at least nobody died. But, <laughs> but then oh, I found man. out someone did. So oh, it's, um, that was sort of his sense of humour. He would have loved that kind of joke. And uh, he was a massive cricket fan. And, um, yeah, it was probably his last little little joke, I suppose. But, mm. um, yeah, he'd been hanging on for a fair while. So it was, it was overdue. What was it about him that made you have such a strong relationship, uh, you know, player coach uh, subsequently like what made him a good coach uh, he was just really eccentric and um, he was real old school um, sort of tough but would have a laugh and that sort of thing and um, he was sort of the first coach that um, saw a bit of ability with a bat for me I was always a bowler um, sort of growing up kind of through the, through the grades and he sort of promoted me to open the batting and said mm. have a bit of a slog and that sort of thing which seemed a bit ridiculous at the time but um, yeah, he's he was just a character. He would do things like bring flowers to the game and, and sort of lay them on the side of the boundary and say a prayer for the other team because they were going to lose so badly and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and, um, I remember we had a, a tournament in South Island. I think it was 
um, Junior Gillette Cup or something like that in, in third or fourth form. And um, he always drilled into us that you, your first victory of the day over another team is turning up looking better than them. So we always <laughs> had to turn up in our whites with our blazer and our caps and stuff on. And wow. um, You have a very nice lid today as well. Thank you. So the, Thank his, you. His influence has um, remained. That's did, see, did you think I was winning when I came in because of my hair? Mm. See, he's right. I'm on the, I'm on the upper hand. And honestly, ready. that is such high decile school energy, though, eh? Yeah. Like but that whole, yeah. I mean, I'm guessing you had blazers and stuff yeah. as well. So I just those. remember this day we um, we turned up and we had whites and blazers and a cap on. And we were like thinking, yeah, we're going to mm. um, towel these guys up. And, and they turned up wearing full number one, suits, tie. Ooh. And Ooh. we sort of saw them come <laughs> in and went, oh, crap. Yeah. And uh, Dave was late. Um, which is, was also one of his pet peeves, and he turned up with a massive bandage on his face and blood sort of coming out from around the bandage. He'd cut himself shaving with a straight razor in the morning before the game. So we're sitting here oh. looking like an absolute rabble. Our coach is bleeding <laughs> from the face, and he's sort of trying to convince us that, oh, it doesn't really matter that much. Like, you still have to just play on the field. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was that sort of guy. <laughs> it, it reminds me of a tweet that Brian Lara uh, sent uh, the other day where it was um, a quote from former English captain Chris Cowdery. And he says, I was very proud to be appointed England captain. I went for the toss against the West Indies wearing my whites and my England blazer. Viv Richards came out wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt, surfing shorts and flip-flops. As England captain, I should read our team sheet to the opposing captain. I got no further than four names when Viv said, play who you want, man, ain't gonna make a difference. So That's a nice accent. Thank you. Inspired okay. by Toby Manhire. Yeah. But, you know, if you go out with that swagger... Doesn't matter how nice your haircut is, uh, Viv, Richards, Viv Richards is going to smash you. He did have good hair anyway, though, so you know it's 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 not beyond the realm of possibility that that theory still applies. Speaking uh, of batting, I just wanted to quickly go back to this because I thought of it when you talked about being a bowler who suddenly was handed um, a responsibility to bat. Have you ever hit a ball better than uh, that third delivery from Jofra Archer in the Super Over? That, um, that sounded so good off the bat. I, I certainly haven't hit a more important ball better. Um, yeah, look, probably not. I mean, you don't really remember sort of individual shots, I suppose, over a career, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I have about three. Speak <laughs> for yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's one of those things you sort of set up for a, for a delivery, and uh, all you can really do when you're facing a guy by 90 miles an hour is set up for what you think is coming and hope that that's what's what's eventually it and um, that was basically the ball I was hoping for an attempted Yorker that was dragged down a touch and um, yeah you're not you're not not going to swing are you when you need mm, whatever mm. it was 13 off 4 or whatever it was at the time but um, yeah one more would have been nice the next one of the next two balls but yeah what, what was it like with. walking out for that Super over a World Cup final yeah. Super over I want to ask on this did you did you volunteer to walk out what no, were you picked. No, Kane. So we, the game was tied, the first fifty overs, and mm-hmm. then um, we sort of came together, waited while they went to um, go back in and have a drink or whatever, and choose their batsman. And Kane, we sort of had a uh, a Kane led discussion mm. on the field about who would be good to go, and and he, I just sort of stayed silent. I'm not really at the level to be throwing out suggestions, especially not volunteering myself <laughs> in a situation Are like you that. Really but, not. Um, no, nah, guys like you know Tim and Ross and Kane and stuff were mainly the ones talking, and right. um, Kane basically turned around and yeah said me and Gut 
and that was before uh, we even bowled. So it's solely something you know about pretty early on the piece. Yeah. So when uh, you know in that sort of in that over that the Black Caps had to bowl, and you knew that you were going to be batting. I mean, did, uh, were you able to focus on the the fielding side of that? Were you uh, sort of were your thoughts just dominated by what was coming afterwards? Uh, no, that's something I've actually done a lot of work on is um, staying present and um, sort of concentrating on what's relevant. And, and I think the nature of um, well, obviously, a situation like that is that every little mistake is amplified, and mm. um, you really need to um, to concentrate on what matters. And I think we saw a couple of sort of misfields and poor calls when they were fielding um, that potentially gave us a chance to to steal the game. But um, no, my my attention turned to batting basically as soon as that last ball was was crossing the boundary from Joss Butler, and then obviously you only have sort of six or seven minutes to. Mm-hmm. It's quite a long walk. Um, and laws to get all the way back up to the changing room, so you Indeed. have to um, pop up there. And um, we actually had a discussion about boundary count um, before we went out to bat and, and all that sort of oh, thing. You and, did so everyone um, knew, everyone knew, and there was we had to you know search through the the game and try and figure out how many boundaries each team actually had and all that sort of thing. So it was reasonably hectic there at the time, but then mm-hmm. once you once you get back out on the field, it's actually quite calm. Did you did you follow any of the sort of hyperventilating that happened back in New Zealand in the immediate days afterwards, where it was sort of that that desperate search for like, oh maybe there's a loophole here that means we can share the World Cup, or oh, maybe actually that rule was stupid and it never should have been in place and it should have been wickets instead, or you know, did, or, or did that all sort of pass you by? Um, I, I think once you know the results done. I mean, you know it's never going to be overturned. The, the ICC is never going to come out and go, actually, we got it wrong. Mm. That shouldn't have been the result, you know, cup shared or anything like that. You know that's never going to happen. So Duncan you- Grieve wanted it to be a personal mission of the spin-off for about four hours. He was committed to it, to getting the result overturned. Mm. Um, he was he was very upset. Really a campaigning media organisation more than anything else. So, yeah, it, it yeah. seemed like an appropriate thing for us to try a, and a, do. A David and Goliath venture <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> against the might of the ICC with its yeah. $2 billion a year revenue. Yeah. Um, probably the only thing I did vaguely consider was the idea of the ICC coming out and saying, we'll share prize money right. because it was, a, well, two ties. Um, but obviously that's why are they going to come out and voluntarily give away yeah. <laughs> X amount of money. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was probably desperation more than anything after mm. having something like that taken away from you. But no, I think you just try and move on, I guess. Mm. Well, it did seem to take a long time. You initially refused to be a part of um, the pod because you weren't quite ready to talk about it and um, you know took a couple of days and now feel, you know, now you're here. Um that's about how long has it been? It's been quite a while now. I think it's been about six weeks. What was getting on with it? How did you, you know, manage to move on? Um, I actually saw a, an interview with um, Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper a few days ago, and they talked a lot about like grief and loss and getting over. You know, loss in your life and that sort of thing. And obviously, Stephen's dad died, right? Yeah, I think his dad and his brother died in a plane crash. I think. Um, and they, and obviously, losing a World Cup final is not the same as losing your father. I think that goes without saying. But they talked a lot about gratitude, and they're both quite religious, and I'm not. Um, but they sort of talked about how if you're going to be grateful for life and for the opportunities you get and playing games in front of thirty thousand people and that sort of thing, you actually have to be grateful as well 
for the bad days because they come together. You can't. No one turns up and wins 150 games in a row in their career and then retires and that's it. So you actually, if you're going to be grateful for the times when you, you know, beat India in a semi final and you know <laughs> that sort of thing, if you're going to be happy those days, you actually have to accept the bad ones as well. And I think I'd also just you sort of get sick of yourself a little bit. I think <laughs> you know you sort of moping around a lot and sad and miserable and eventually you just look at yourself in the mirror and you go what who is this like what's going on here and I think about a month is a reasonable duration for that sort of behavior so it's just about sucking up and moving on basically when uh, you know in in that moment right after the the run out what what was the first thing that you said to Martin Guptill after it was clear that the game was over um I, <laughs> I think I said you'll be right, mate, and then I said, "100 um, percent effort is all we ask for." Mm. And if you give 100 percent effort, you you take what comes. And I think no one's going to be hurting more than he is in that moment. So there's no point going, you know, don't worry about or mm. you know, mm. we're proud of you or anything like that. You just have to remind them that um, it's not the end of the world, and you sort of, no. I mean. I felt for him the whole tournament really because you see how hard he's working and how hard he's trying and mm. um, there was footage of him I think it was the West Indies game after he got out and the commentators talked a lot about him how miserable he looked and that sort of thing and yeah, when you're well, close it, to it a guy it almost became a meme you know yeah. him looking through the balcony window and you sort of and you see a guy getting torn apart in the media and you sort of think you know he's trying so hard to contribute to the team and it's just not working for him. But you sort of get quite insular in those situations and you try harder and you mm. train harder. And I've been there personally, been exactly there. And you sort of just have to put an arm around, I suppose, guys like that and just remind them that it's it's not the end of the world and life will move on. And mm. I think mm. it'll take all of us a long time to get over it fully, but I think especially the guys who are involved in the crunch time. Yeah, yeah. Well, have you, have you spoken to him much since? Um, yep, we've spoken a couple of times since. Not about the World Cup, just, right. just just life. Yeah, just general stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you know how he's doing with it all? I mean, because you sort of uh, there's been not a media blackout as such uh, from from obviously the players who are playing in the Test series at the moment. You know, they're speaking to media and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem like there's been uh, quite as many players coming out and talking publicly as you might have expected after quite a high-profile event like that. So I guess, I mean, for the people who were involved at that final stage, do you know if they're okay, I suppose? Um, I know I'm okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yes. that's, the, that's the person I talk to the most. But, uh, oh, look, I think it's sort of... Guys move their own directions, I suppose, after the, after the World Cup. I think that's why it makes it so hard. Some guys went to Canada. Some guys mm. went to Europe on holiday. A handful came home. And I think um, it's sort of up to guys' own support systems, I guess. People have got wives and kids and that sort of thing. And um, I suppose it's about finding comfort through those people. And like I mentioned before, I mean, it's not the end of the world. You know, mm. plenty mm. of worse things have happened. You lose, you yeah, lose the a Amazon World Cup final. Amazon's on fire, right? The Amazon's on fire. Donald Trump's yeah, still the most great. powerful person in the world. You know? There's a lot of problems in the world that are real problems. Yeah. You know, um, just losing a game of cricket's not really that far up there. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. I suppose At you, the fucking time, though. Oh. 
Yeah. And then I woke up the next morning and I found out Federer had lost as well. And I just thought, that, that day really sucks. Yeah. And that was a really, really good game as well. Yeah. Mm. We mm. had that on the phone, the cricket on the TV. It was it was intense. Hell of a morning, really. Um, you, Terrible day. You talked about uh, Canada a bit there recently. And, uh, you know, I'm... You're going to have to forgive the cricketing public of New Zealand a little bit here because I'm not sure if they quite followed it as obsessively as they followed the Cricket World Cup. Um, I hope they didn't. How did how did how did you go in Canada with the Edmonton Royals? Um, it was it was perfect. It was the greatest tournament of all time. It was <laughs> um, it's sort of a, a little startup T20 competition in Toronto, and there's one ground, one hotel. Mm. Sort of how many sort of 85, 90 odd players, um, and like you said, n- no one's really following it. It's quite low key. You can sort of just go out and play, and it was exactly what I needed at that time. Was there was no throwdowns, there was no bowling in the nets. It was just rock out, have a slog, see mm. what happens. Did you get any and, runs? Um, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was our um, top run scorer, I think, in the team. Um, and, and Canadians came out to watch. Yeah, there was there were good crowds. It was a capacity of about sort of four or five thousand on the ground, so it was quite a small ground. But um, yeah, there were a few days sold out and mm. that sort of thing. So yeah, it was it was a great little tournament. Obviously, there's been a few teething issues mm. um, around finances and stuff, but I think they'll all be sorted well, out. Yeah, have you? I mean, have you been paid yet? Yeah, I've been paid over half. Right, so right. it's sort of one of those things. It's sort of the nature of these T20 competitions that it's all a bit disjointed and things come at different times and um, you sort of. You just have a bit of faith, I guess, that if they they're really serious about, you know, running a tournament long term, um, no one turns up next year if people don't get paid for this year. So if they no, actually want to no. run the tournament con- concurrently, I suppose, or consecutively, you, you actually need to be paid. So, well, is that um, uh, is that why the uh, the European version of it got cancelled at all? Or I mean, is there any insight you can give us into why that other tournament fell over? Uh, I wasn't going to Euro, so I'm going to the Caribbean. Um, you sort of had to pick between them; they're all at the same time. Right, right. Um, so I, don't, I can't really tell you a whole lot about Euro, but it is run by the same people. Mm. So whether it was a case of they just bit off a little bit more than they could chew in one year, and sort of needed to focus on one or the other, and um, I've heard the Euro's delayed until next year, not cancelled. So right, it, it's right. one of those things, but right. Um, who knows? It's a funny world when you get to <laughs> th- that level of money and investors and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of moving parts. So it is, the, and, and I just um, it, it feels uh, ever so slightly. I'm sure you're a Simpsons fan, but uh, you know the idea of like a massive T20 tournament in Europe and another one in Canada or something. It just feels a bit like a monorail, you know? Hmm. Like, uh, I mean, as an idea, it, it doesn't quite seem to. Uh, make sense as you know in terms of supply and demand of cricket no it doesn't it, to be perfectly honest I think um, it only really makes sense when you look at it um, from a non-business perspective it's not about making money it's about guys who have so much money already that they love the idea of playing fantasy cricket with real people <laughs> so if they can you know if you've got a billion dollars and you love cricket what what greater way to spend a couple of million than to set a team up in a random T20 comp and yeah. be able to give team talks to Faf Duplessis and Kane Williamson and you know yeah Chris Gale and yeah, sit in the bar with them afterwards and have a few beers and you know if that's what floats your boat and you've got that much money then like why wouldn't you yeah you could do worse yeah you could do a lot worse it sounds like my dream except yeah. I don't have any money <laughs> 
And are you enjoying that sort of mercenary T20 life, or would you rather be in Sri Lanka? Um, I'd certainly rather be in Sri Lanka. Um, I think you go through waves a little bit. I think um, I, I potentially had a, a year, I think it was 2014, where I did, yeah, it was 2014, where I did too many in a row too many on the bounce I think I was away from home for about nine months mm. um, and by the end of it I just I was just totally sick of it I just wanted to go home um, and you sort of you, it, it hits you like a like a train you're, you're fine you're loving it and then you wake up one morning and you're just like oh, I hate this <laughs> sort of so yeah, it's about a personal some people can do it indefinitely guys like Chris Gale seem to be able to just mm. go from tournament to tournament and, and never really be bothered by it but how I different would his fee be to yours because that must make a difference. Um, oh, well, I mean, I don't think it does. I think money. I mean, I the year that I earned the most money in my career, career was the year I hated the most. Right. So it's. I, I think it, it papers over the cracks to an extent. I think if you're really, really hating it and you've got to spend two months in Bangladesh, if a hundred grand's going into your bank account, I don't think it really makes you feel that much better about yourself. I think, especially mm. when you're a guy like him who's probably earned. God knows, $10 million over his career, I think it's probably less important. I mean, we'd all love to discover that for ourselves, whether or not a hundred grand going into your bank account makes a significant difference to your happiness. But, um, you know, in the meantime, you're about to head over to the Caribbean. Uh, what, uh, what's the appeal of that tournament for you? Um, well, I went about four years ago. And I actually didn't really enjoy it at all. That was the, the tail end. That was what I just talked about. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a lot of travel, but um, I actually got convinced by Colin Munro, mm. who's in the team that I'm um, playing for, and he said, um, "Look, it's a great team environment." Um, Brendan McCollum's the coach, so there's a few familiar faces around, and um, he just said, "Look, mate, get, get your name in the hat. I'm not. I'm not going for." very good money but mm. it's along the lines of you know get your name back out there in T20 circuits the owners are the same owners as Calcutta Knight Riders in the IPL so it's sort of one of those things where you get your name out there become a familiar face again and then potentially down the road it might open a few things up but um, for me as well having I mean last winter I was working as a marketing intern like you mentioned in the, yeah, in the introduction yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. what was it um, like having a real job by the way I mean, because um, I've always personally wondered what it would be like to have a real job as opposed to <laughs> whatever it is that we do here. I've always so, wondered but, what it would be like to be a cricketer. <laughs> but but you know, am I the only person who can explain to both of you then? Well, yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually really enjoyed it. I, I think, I mean, I mentioned briefly before about how in cricket you you can't guarantee success. You, you can sort of prepare the best you can, but you can hit 10,000 balls in a week and walk out and average four for the next three games. Mm. It, it's sort of completely detached from reality in a way. And I kind of loved, the, I suppose, the contrast of a real job where you work on something for a week from Monday to Friday, and then you turn up on Monday and you just start again from where you left off. Mm. It, it's sort of like mm. you actually feel like you've made some tangible progress towards what you're trying to do. The way you explained it there sounds like Sisyphus and the Boulder, though. Like, you know, you, you do Monday to Friday and then you come back and do Monday to Friday and then you come back and do Monday yeah. to Friday, you know. Do you but that's why Syphysis is such a powerful uh, allegory because it is what life is. Yeah, but I'm, I mean, I suppose how do you um, convert that to, you know, just the same thing day in, day out, mm. keeping on going. I mean, how, how do you manage to fit yourself into that mindset when you have had a career which by its very nature is entirely highs and lows, you know? Or, or is it that the highs and lows 
uh, aren't actually as exciting as they might seem from the outside. Did you find being an intern in, in a marketing role lacked dopamine hit? <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a better way. I think because of the period I was in in my career where I was 50-50 on whether I was going to retire and um, I, I'd sort of reached the end of my tether with cricket, I think, first of all, I had no choice because I had a mortgage, mm. so I had mm. to get a real job. Um, and secondly, it was, it was sort of about exploration and, and sort of finding out, do I like this or do I not? It wasn't a, um, you know, uh, I'm doing this because I want to. And I was very lucky. It was actually my um, my partner's older brother was working in the company and got me the role. And um, I was obviously still training quite hard alongside it, sort of up at six in the morning to bowl and gym and then heading into work after that, and which is obviously what normal people do. Um, but it was new to me. Um, so it was it was sort of a six months where I just allowed myself to enjoy myself. It was, you know, what do I actually want to do? Mm. And, you know, I was very fortunate that um, Michael Bracewell and, and Bruce Eager, the, the leaders in Wellington, sort of called me up and um, convinced me to come back. And, um, like, I make no bones about it. I'm very fortunate to, to have been able to, to have a bit of a resurgence and, and end up um, playing the cricket I have and there's a lot of people around me that are probably owed more for that than I am. You must feel um, very pleased that you chose to stick with cricket given what's happened since then. Absolutely, yeah. What What was it about that moment that had got you down about cricket that led to you nearly retiring? Um, and how did you find a way out, out of it? Yeah, I, th- I think with anything it was a, a, a gradual and prolonged kind of downward spiral and I think um, it sort of started at the end of 2014, 2015 I had a really really bad 12 months in the game Um, I sort of never really recovered from that either physically or or mentally with the game and I think when you've, I had such a like a rollicking start to my international career Mm, mm. and then had such a bad year, you sort of well I at least sort of lost sight of how long it had taken to lay the foundations for that start and then you sort of start at zero again and you go, okay, I want to be scoring test hundreds again. And the more you try and push for that, the further away you get. And that sort of just became the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced. Yeah. And uh, I think it's almost a benefit of when you reach true rock bottom, you actually you get gain a bit of clarity. You sort of look around and you go, what am I doing? And you sort of have a chance to go, okay, I'm actually not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, my technique's going all the way back to what it was when I was 18. Screw everything I've learned since then. I'm actually going to start again. And what's the worst that could happen? I'm mm. still shit. <laughs> like, that's literally the worst thing that happened because I was terrible. <laughs> I watched footage of me batting in probably, what, the end of 2017, and oh, I was fucking awful. And you just go, who is this? Yeah. Like, it's not me. I'm not batting out there. It's just an amalgamation of probably six different coaches and eight different mentors all saying you should do this and that and this and that and because you're lost you just listen any port in a storm and you just latch onto anything that might help and eventually you're not even yourself anymore when you're in that kind of um, mental funk do other players especially on the opposite team uh, I mean do they pick up on it and hone in on it in that way like do you do you feel like in that sort of environment it, it becomes more difficult because it's a vulnerability that gets exploited? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I think the I think the worst thing is when you play with guys 
and you know they know how badly you're struggling. Mm. And then you flip into a different tournament and all of a sudden you're playing against them. Mm. And you know that they know how <laughs> like how mentally you're battling with the game. And so you're batting up there and they're at gully or bowling or and they just spray you because they know you've got nothing. And you sort of it becomes this big mental game where it's like an imposter syndrome. You go, are oh, these guys going to find out how terrible I am? It's sort of like a, I remember, I literally remember sitting I think I was in my in my lounge at home and going, God, it was such a good run. Like to make it three or four years of international cricket without be- before anyone much. found out how shit I was. Yeah. <laughs> that was sort of like that's a great run. I remember being sort of like like can't ask for more than that. Yeah. And then yeah. obviously now looking back it's such a ridiculous opinion to have. But that's what happens when you're in that sort of mental state, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose that would probably be um I mean, that almost sounds like a feeling of relief, mm. as it were, uh, like that feeling of rock bottomness to to go so far in that direction that you then start to come to feel mm. like you've been lucky just to just to survive as long yeah. as you have. And that's know? what liberates you. Like for me personally, going to Wellington, I, I genuinely thought, what is honestly the worst thing that can happen? Mm. I turn up in Wellington, I average seven mm. for the season, and then I retire. Would that have been it? Do you think? That, I yeah, mean, would, had, yeah. had you have had a poor season with Wellington, would that have just yeah? That's oh, the end yeah, absolutely. Right. Yep. That was. I took convincing to go at all. Wow. And, and now you sort of, now you get to look forward to standing at mid on while there's a fifty k an hour southerly coming in at you and it's eight degrees. I'm generally running straight into the teeth of it. That's oh, lucky. <laughs> you get to bowl so into the great. wind. The, the best thing about playing for Wellington is that every away game's a holiday because you turn yeah. up and you go, oh, look at this, just light breeze. It's perfect. I don't again. I don't want to cast dispersions, but did they just hire you for Wellington because they needed a into the wind bowler? For is that. I mean, is there a possibility of that, you know? Uh, look, uh, you'd have to ask them to be perfectly honest, but, um, yeah, well, the, the the captain, Michael Bryce, well, he's a batsman, so I don't think he really cares who's bowling where. It's might not of, even understand might the even, concept of even, it. Yeah, he doesn't understand anything. Um, <laughs> no, he's a, he's a great bloke. We spent a lot of time together. But, um, yeah, look, I think, well, when I went to Wellington, they, they sort of, first of all, they convinced me. Um, and then they basically said along the lines of, we're actually not getting you for runs or wickets. We're getting you because of the person we think you are. Mm. And I think that probably helped me immensely because all of a sudden the pressure came off um, performance and it became as long as you're a good, you contribute positively to the group mm. and you bring things at team meetings and you bring positive cultural influence. And then if you average the Firebirds account every exactly. once in a while. Get a bit of clout and, out yeah. there. Well, that, um, as long as you do those things, if you average 10 with the bat and 40 with the ball, that's it. we understand that could happen. You know, And it sort of it flipped my mentality totally on its head of, I need to average X amount to get picked for New Zealand again. I need to take X number of wickets, which was what I was obsessed with in the mm. seasons leading mm. up to that. I think that person who you are makes you a unique athlete because in modern day sport we've been so cut off from access to players um it's very sort of regimented and sanitized the way that these sports people are presented to us and you've always provided both personality and quite a lot of intimacy you've you've revealed who you are a lot on on social media and and opportunities like this 
did you have to ask for permission or is it just something you've always done and that's you've been allowed to just be who you are um because you've fascinated the cricket world you you know you pick up a lot of international media interviews because of the way you tweet and i think that's really cool i think it took me a while to to get the balance right i think um I think that that's who I am. I'm quite an expressive person. I, I have an opinion on a lot of things. I'm, I talk a lot. Um, and I think I, I it took me a while to kind of, I suppose, marry that with being in a team environment and having to think of other people and think of a brand and the Black Caps and New Zealand cricket and that sort of thing. And there was sort of a lot of battling going on for a while. And, um, I think, yeah, I think it's just also a part of growing up a little bit. I think... I was quite a late maturer. <laughs> I think that's probably fair to say. I think Mike Hesson would probably attest to that. I think um, I wouldn't have been the easiest person to have in a team environment probably until I was 25, maybe 26. Um, so Your brain's only just f- finished developing at that mm, point. If then. <laughs> I have a lot of 28-year-old mates who are probably still finishing that off. But um, Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the biggest developments is not sort of, I suppose, fearing a backlash. You know, knowing what's a sensible thing to say or tweet or say in an interview, and and knowing what to leave, and um, I think that's one of those things that just comes with experience. Mm. I suppose. Uh, do you do you feel like you're part of a, a new wave of athletes at all? And in, in the way that you know we see uh, TJ Peranata uh, putting the wristband for Ihu Matau on, or Sonny Bill Williams, for example. I mean, LeBron James as well. It took oh, him sort of ten years to develop example, his yeah. unique mm. voice. But is it, uh, you know, are we entering a time now where it's more possible again for athletes to, you know, be open about the fact that they have opinions about the world, or, or is it, you know, still something that, uh, that you feel like you, you have to keep a lid on? I, I think there's a time and a place. I, I think. Um, there's so much media attention and um, both negative and positive I think you look at I don't have to name people recently in Australasian media who've had negative (laughs) media associated with them and I think um, I think it's important I think you can debate whether sportsmen should be role models until the sun goes down but I think the reality is that they are Um, at the very least you have a megaphone yeah at the very least yeah and I think um, people will make up what sort of person you are, even if you say nothing. Mm. It, it, it's sort of one of those things like, you know, people talk about a lot of the Australian cricketers, and it's funny, once you get to know guys, you realise that some of the guys a lot of people think are dickheads are actually great blokes, and, and the other way around a lot of the time. So people who have never met you will form an opinion of who you are. So I guess the logical question after that, was David Warner actually a deserving winner of Aussie Dad of the Year? Did he, did he? Sorry, did he win Aussie Dad of the Year? He won Aussie Dad of the Year. Yeah, um, one of those like kind of fake-ish awards, but someone gave it to him. I think. Remember before I mentioned about how when you grow up, you learn what things to say and what things not to <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, you did mention that. I think this may be one of those moments. Uh, See, I thought Nathan Lyon was a dickhead, and then I. Uh, very fortunately, had an evening out with the two, with the New Zealand and the Australian cricket team, and and he was really fun. Mm. So that was that was a big one mm. uh, for me. Met David Warner, still hated him afterwards. Mm. Well, uh, for me, what I remember 
um, sitting down and having a beer with Mitchell Johnson in 2015 after we played them at a test and he was one of the sort of quietest, nicest blokes I've ever talked to and you sort of try and marry that with what he's like on the field and he's quite hated and mm. seen as this sort of monster and it's sort of quite interesting. Sort of, I'm probably reading way too much into it but I always felt that his his absolutely fucking ludicrous moustache that he had during that Ashes series showed that he perhaps had quite a wry sense of humour. Yeah, well, you have to um, be able to laugh at yourself, I suppose, to have such a ridiculous moustache. Yeah, 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 indeed. Not thinking about anything at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let that one go through to the keeper. Um, <laughs> do you still have desire to score test hundreds? Yes, I do. It's, in all honesty, it's probably not my number one priority at the moment. Uh, my number one priority at the moment is, is white ball cricket, mm. trying to um, nail down my spot to a, a guaranteed selection in, in both short formats. And um, I'll obviously continue um, playing domestic cricket four-day stuff for Wellington and, and trying to put my best foot forward there. But um, ideally, I would be in all three formats cricketer for New Zealand. That's still what I want to do. But um, if I had to not play one of them, I think test cricket would probably be the one that fell away. Mm. Is that because of the type of cricketer you are? Because, I mean, because a, a batting all-round is a pretty useful sort of person to have in a test team. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's probably more um, what I'm good at. I, I think my strength is, is white ball cricket, mm. naturally. Um, and also just the sort of stage of my career. I'm 29 next month. Um, the the lifespan of a, of a seam bowling all-rounder, especially in test cricket, mm. you're very lucky to get past sort of 33 um, so physically, that would probably get tougher and tougher, whereas the, the shorter formats are obviously a little bit easier on the body. But um, well, I, I you, think you sound like you have designs on going beyond thirty-three by that sort I do. of statement. I do. That's absolutely. quite remarkable, given yeah. that you are about to retire. It is. Well, I actually, yeah, I don't have a whole lot of cricket in my legs for someone who's twenty-nine. I think I've played sixty odd first-class games. Um, I think. Um, you'll probably fact odd more than I have. But yeah, you'll on, probably yeah. fact check this and tell me I'm totally wrong. I think Chris Wokes might have played late hundreds, right, or something. Yeah. So um, there's certainly people like Stephen Smith and David Warner have played very few. Yeah, the funny thing is they both played more cricket than I did during their bands, which <laughs> I found quite galling when people were talking about how well they were hitting the ball when they yeah, came back. Yeah, I was yeah. like, they're playing more than I have. How well? Of course, they're hitting the ball well. Vlogging park cricketers, and, <laughs> you know, still doing the Toyota jump after centuries. Yeah. And, you know, good for them. I'd probably do a hammy <laughs> if I tried to do that jump. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, if if you're thinking, uh, you know, another five, six, seven, whatever years of cricket, that's I mean, that's going to be quite a big chunk of your life as well, isn't it? So do you think at all at the moment about, I mean, because obviously you had that breakout from cricket, but do you think at all now about what you'll do afterwards? Um, yeah, well, I think the main thing for me is that I'm really enjoying it at the moment. I, I think, um, yeah, having that, you know, it's a cliche to say you, you don't know what you got till it's gone, but having that break and, and having that time playing domestic cricket and, and working is really... Um, I suppose revived my love for, for international cricket especially mm. um, and yeah I'm just loving it at the moment the, the, the more cricket I can play the better um, that probably will wane at some point especially with loss of form and you know injuries and that sort of thing which mm. are inevitable but I think um, I've sort of stumbled across a bit of a formula for, for longevity I think in a sense of not 
you know, sweating the small stuff too much and um, enjoying myself. And, and if I get runs and wickets, that's great. Um, but also, yeah, it's about, you know, turning to the future as well. And like you mentioned, do I know what I want to do after I finish? I've got an idea. But, oh, yeah. Um, do, you, do you feel be, like spilling it right now or, or is it something that you want to keep under wraps until um, the time comes? Uh, it'll involve journalism and uh, media and, and that sort of thing. That, that, that I'd love to sort of make the sort of transition that someone like a Mark Richardson has done and yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. sort of go from sports media into more mainstream so stuff. Then, are we looking for a sports editor at the moment? We could, we could that, be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just uh, you know, hand your CV in. On, I'll, I'll, on have to, I'll have to write one for a start. Where, and, uh, the world sort of needs a left-wing version of uh, Mark Richardson as well. It does. It does. Or at least someone, not necessarily left wing, someone who's aware of uh, what's actually happening in the world. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think I, I recall you had a stint on Radio Sport back in the day mm. as well. So, uh, you know, that must be uh, something where you feel like there is actually a CV to start with. Yeah, hair for television as well. Hair for television. Why, why hair for? Why not face for television? Just the the hair really stands out. Okay, um, I'll take that compliment that's been afforded to me. Mm-hmm. Um, like a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah, and that yeah that radio sport. I loved that stunt working on radio sport, and that was um, in the middle of 2015, which was easily my worst year. That was sort of the oh. one sort of shining light out of that that I could take forward, and um, yeah, it was great. I loved it. Mm. Um, well, we look forward to reading your stuff. We look forward to seeing you uh, become the fourth host on the project or whatever it is that you start your career in broadcasting that's with. A, that's a big start. Third third host on the Offspin, maybe? You could yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, offer yeah, you an yeah. unpaid internship. Yeah. We, uh, we always... Actually, do we pay our interns? We do. I yeah. hope we do. Maybe edit that out. Did you get paid, Alice? Oh, thank God. Producer Alice, Alice was paid Alice, well. Alice, our as producer an for an intern, got paid. We're and okay. And it can lead to a to career at the company as well. So, yeah. I'll, I'll get back to you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, we'll look forward to it. You've look, got my number. <laughs> well, Simon does now, and he'll never stop calling you. Um, we get texts every Thursday to show up for our LMS team. Mark, Mark Great Batch gets one every week, and he always says no. Do you reckon he even replies now, or do you think it's an automatic reply? No, they're, they're always sort of bespoke. I'd, I'd use different um, sort of carrots to attempt to get him to come. If he likes carrots. Well, he likes beers and I flatter mm. his career and stuff like that, but um, still nothing. Mm. Mark Craig once played for us, but that's as good as it's got. What, what was his carrot? Oh, no, he didn't really need one. <laughs> be, a few beers. <laughs> Three free beers. Um, he hit the fastest 50 in LMS history, though. Yeah. He can hit a ball. He's only man in the history of his cricket to hit his first ball for six. We, uh, we talked to him about it when he visited yep. the offspin. We are devolving here, so uh, we should probably <laughs> wrap this up. It's been a decadent episode as well. It, has it, could, been be our, it could be our last. So It could be. But uh, look, we are, we are very grateful to Coffee Supreme for helping us get here uh, now, so thank you to them. Um, also very grateful that in between Canada and the Caribbean, Jimmy Nation would come in and have a yarn to us. And by the way, just quickly, is this an exclusive interview? Because we weren't quite sure. You haven't really talked to any other media as of yet. It was exclusive right now. I can't see anyone else here. But Oh, that's fantastic. Um, 
I'm, so I'm pretty available. <laughs> so we've got, uh, as far as obscure cricket podcasts go, we want to thank you for giving us an exclusive interview. Our That's first big Very, story. very oh, generous my of My pleasure. You. Um, and yeah, that is the offspin. Uh, Continue to email Duncan Grieve, Duncan at the spinoff.co.nz to uh, prolong our. Um, troubled and painful existence yeah and maybe we can get a summer out of this as well um thank you so much to alice as well for producing today thank you simon as always this whiskey is going down very well but i have to single malt and coffee supreme make a good partnership Kia ora e te iwi, Te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.